welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Okay, so we're right back at it where we left off last time. We're going to pick up with a question here from Jeremy Cheek. Uh, is asking about yoke tuning, which is where your cable splits and makes a Y. You call that the yoke cable. Um, it says yoke tuning at rest, uh, meaning while your bow is at rest, or versus full draw um, and arrow knock effect. Uh, and the arrow, arrow knock effect on arrow flight, speed knock versus, uh, factory knock. Uh, so a couple questions here, but first off, uh, when it comes to yoke tuning, um, anytime you have a bow, you want to make sure I always check my bows while they're at full draw. I like the either the top cam or the top wheel to be totally vertical at full draw. I like the string and cable to track uh, perfectly down that track. So especially when I set up a new set of strings and cables, I'll draw that bow back and look at that bow from behind it at full draw, and I'll look at my cam lean and my angles. Um, And then I'll go ahead and twist up how I need to in order to make it work. Um, when you're looking at it from the back, if the wheel if the wheel is leaning to the left and by the part I'm looking at is the top of the wheel, if I'm looking at my top cam, if that top wheel is leaning left, um, then I'll go ahead and add twists to the opposite side. I'll add some twists on the right side of that yoke, which will then pull the top of that cam over to the right as you're shortening that cable. So I like mine perfectly vertical at full draw. I like them to track perfect, and that's given me my best results when it comes to tune. Um, When it comes to arrow knock, knock effect, um, knock fit on the string and how a knock is pinched in the loop, and then also obviously the weight of your knocks um, is pretty dang important. Uh, I've learned this by doing a lot of trial and error once again. Um, I can tell you that there were years when I was hunting where um, my bows shot a lot better with a knock, with one knock versus another. A lot of times it came down to how they fit the serving. If your knocks fit your servings too tight, then it's definitely going to start causing you problems. And if you are a person that shoots a bow, a low poundage bow, or a bow with the poundage backed way down to where you don't have a lot of string tension, that knock fit plays even a bigger factor. If your string is somewhat loose, or especially like kids um, with their kids' bows where they back them down, or ladies where they back the bows down and the strings are pretty limber, if that knock fits super tight on the string, it'll actually pull that string forward until it finally clips off, and that will affect accuracy. So you really want to have an arrow that clips on 
you know you want to hear that snap but you also want to be able to freely spin the serving inside the throat of that knock and then you want to be able to somewhat tap it you know with a generous little tap on the back to get it to come off um, if it's much tighter than that you can definitely run into some some issues when it comes to grouping with knocks that's really something that you're going to get need to go out and try for yourself um, I know that you know right now most of my uh, hunting arrows are totally set up with lighted knocks I don't even shoot them with the factory knock just because I know that I'm going to be hunting with lighted knocks so I actually put um, like last year's knocks I'll put in my arrows now so even if the lights aren't working anymore uh, I'll still be able to shoot them and practice with them so that I know that my hunting arrows my main good arrows are going to hit exactly where my practice arrows are there is definitely a difference depending on fit as well as weight um, I also remember one year I shot I had a bow that I just wasn't getting to shoot as good as I wanted and I was actually shooting pin knocks at the time uh, Easton pin knocks and I just really wasn't getting it shooting as good as I had hoped so I actually removed the whole pin system and went to a biter knock that fit inside of the shaft and that knock for that particular X10 arrow combination worked way better for me and I think part of it was I was borderline between that arrow shaft being too weak and being just right so by putting a different knock on there, the biter knock was actually a little bit more flexible than the standard knock. So I think it was absorbing some of that energy and not putting as much flex on the back portion of the arrow. And it was in turn grouping a lot better for me. So with knocks, don't be afraid to do the same thing that I talked to you about with veins. You know, don't be afraid if you have a couple different options for knocks. Put three knocks on one air, you know, one set of arrows, and three knocks on another set of arrows, and go out and shoot them and see how they do. Um, some will certainly shoot a little bit better than than others, and having some that fit your servings uh, are also going to shoot a little bit better too. If your serving builds a flat spot where you're always clipping the arrow in the same position, those you got to worry about. Once you build those flat spots, because um, if at any time you end up having to twist your peep a little bit or turn your loop to where it doesn't pull back the exact same from the back of the string, you can end up kind of putting side pressure on that knock when you've built that big flat spot. Or if you ever have to add a twist to your string, you know, if your string stretches a little bit and you want to add a twist or two to your string, you can change the position of that flat spot on that serving and it'll definitely change your grouping. Um... Next question here is going to be from uh, Ryan Branco, Bronco, Bronco, however you want to say it. I say it all three ways. That way I get it correct. Um, but he's saying maybe explain the difference between a professional staff shooter and a promotional staff shooter as it pertains to target 3D and hunting equipment and brands. Um, this is a pretty pretty common question right now it seems like everybody wants to be on pro staffs and um it's funny because i've you know a lot of times uh when i was younger i just would do anything to have a jersey that said pro staff on it um you know that's 
really what how I felt like I, w- I had made it is if I could get a pro staff jersey. Um, but in the same sense, once I got there, and especially once I started working for um, an, archery, an archery manufacturer, I realized that there's a lot more to being a professional than just how you perform on the tournament field. Um, you know, some of the best um, professionals that we had on our staff were not the ones that were winning every weekend, but they were the ones that were out helping people. They were continuing to help grow archery and um, do things that were positive for the sport um, as well as compete. And I'm just in a position right now, like with our brand, with Knock On and with our shirts, you know, I'm, I'm doing some shirts and some hats with pro staff on it just because I really feel like any of you out there who are supporting what I'm doing and who are listening and who really value what Knock On's about, um, I'm, I'm kind of trusting you guys out there that you're um, in it for the same reason as me and that you're out there trying to represent the sport and show people that you love archery and if someone's interested in it, give them a hand and try to help them grow in the sport because right now archery's really in the mainstream. You know, we're in all the... A lot of the new Hollywood movies, um, archery's popular. There's a lot more moms taking their kids out uh, to shoot archery than any other year in the past. So now's the time to really take advantage of acting like a professional. Um, You know, I think uh, being a promotional type staff guy, to be honest, um, I think you need to be able to have both. I think you should promote the brands that you really have faith in, but in the same sense, I think that you have to act in a professional manner and, you know, really look at what you're doing for the sport instead of what you're doing for yourself because those are the people that I want around me, no no question about it. Those are the people uh, that have loyalty to brands. Um, those are the people that are going to be in the industry for the long haul. You see people changing brands like they change underwear, and going to whoever will give them a, a buck or give them a free product, um, that'll end up coming back and biting you. You know, it's not just about getting something for free. Uh, a lot of times when I walk around these shows, people will come up to me and they'll, you know, throw something to me for free saying, hey, you know, we promote this or something. And in all fairness, unless it's something that I'm going to believe in, I would rather buy it. And try it for myself and know that if I tell some of you guys out there about it, that it's going to work. Um, I don't want to owe anybody nothing. And, you know, it's certainly, um, I guess what I'm doing for the sport means a heck of a lot more than getting something for 10 bucks free. So, you know, try to do a little bit of soul searching out there and make sure that you're put an equal amount of time into helping grow our industry just as much as you are trying to help grow yourself and promote as you are a professional. And I think this whole industry is certainly going to be better because of it. Um, next question here is from Carlos um, Negron. He's saying pea pipe and how to set it for different types of shooting, um, either whether, whether it's for FIDA for field or for 3d he says he spends a lot of time fighting his peep and finding that sweet spot peep height is pretty difficult and a lot of that is going to depend on how your bow feels because of axle to axle length 
Um, the measurement that you really need to learn once you find a bow that you're super comfortable with for peep is you need to learn to measure from the center of the peep straight down in a vertical line to the center of your arrow shaft when your bow's at full draw. Because that number is going to stay the same regardless of the axle to axle length of your bow. And what you'll find is if you're shooting a say a 34 inch bow one year and then a 38 inch bow the next year, if you know that distance from the center of your peep to the center of your shaft in a, in a straight down vertical line while you're at full draw, that distance should always stay the same because your anchor position and, uh, and the height to your eyeball is going to always stay the same. Um, now where it is high and low on the string, that can change, but the actual distance between your anchor position and your eyeball should stay the same. So I know mine's right at about four inches at full draw, 3.9 or something like that. So when I'm shooting a shorter axle to axle bow, the peep actually has to be higher in my string when it's at rest versus when I'm shooting a longer axle to axle bow, it'll be further down the string at rest. However, when I draw both of those bows back, that distance is exactly the same once it comes to full draw. So if you have a bow that you're really comfortable with and you love how that feels, get that measurement and keep a hold of it because if you end up changing models next year, all you really need to do is put an arrow on your bow, put your peep in your string, draw back and have someone measure that thing straight up and down and slide your peep until it's at that exact height and then go ahead and add twist to your string to get your peep in the position that you want it in. And once you put your loop on there and you draw back and anchor, you should be totally in a comfortable position and feel almost like you're shooting your other bow. Um, what I do for tournaments is I kind of try to find a position that's most comfortable in the middle of um, where I have to shoot for distances. So, for example, for for field, feet of field, 60 meters was the max, and then, uh, you know, the closest was 10 meters. So I always just kind of, you know, figured that there was a 50-meter difference there. So... I went ahead and put my peep to feel the best in between there. And honestly, I just set it at about 40 meters to where when I anchored, I put the tip of my nose to the string. I adjusted that peep to where it was like perfect when my sight was set right in the middle of my scale. Um, you know, a lot of feta shooters that struggle shoot, shooting 1400s, it's because... They might feel comfortable at 90 meters, but then once they get to 30 meters, they feel so uncomfortable because their anchor position, they're having to crush their face down on the string so much in order to look through their peep sight up to their sight, which is very high on the bow as compared to 90 meters. So I would always find the in-between mark, or I would set it at the distance that meant the most. You know, for example, right now, if you're shooting feet, obviously you want a peep that's set the most comfortable at 50 meters. Uh, back, you know, back several years ago, I'd always have mine set to feel the most comfortable at 70 meters because that's where the Olympic rounds were shot and that's where you won your medals. When I shot 3D, um, it was actually a little bit less. Um, I would kind of figure what the average distances were at the time for a lot of courses that we were shooting and I'd try to get my sight to be somewhat around that um, that average and my peep to be comfortable at that average. 
you know, it wouldn't be doing me any good to be comfortable at 60 yards or at 20 yards when you know that the majority of your shots are at 35 yards. So kind of go with the rule of average there, and I think you're going to be a lot happier off. Um, let's see. Next question is actually from Ryan's wife, Mallory, whom I should publicly thank for proofing an article for me one night about, I don't know, nine at night. Um, sometimes when I'm writing, I get to the point where I can't proof my own stuff because I've thought about it so many times it all sounds the same in my head. But she's actually um, asking the question, what do you use to keep your grip from slipping on your bow when your hand's really uh, sweaty or when it's raining? gloves tape or something else um, I definitely don't use gloves I've never really liked using gloves during target archery um, on time at times where I've been where it's really 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 hot um, I've used just some uh, regular athletic tape like ankle tape I don't really like much obstruction on my grip I like my hand to be able to move a little bit um, I don't want it sliding to the point where it affects my arrow shots, but um, most of the time I always just used hockey tape because it was I could replace it easy enough and it was thin. It didn't change the feel of my grip, um, and it still did allow me to move around without being too tacky. So that's what I went with. The gloves, not a big fan. Um also, um, while I was copying and pasting um, everyone's questions on these subjects, um, Mallory, I did notice on your latest profile picture that you've actually got a small hitch in your shooting form. And this is something that's really common. It's especially common in women, but it's also super common in anyone that's trying to pull a little bit too much weight. Um, because what you do to try to get that bow to break over the valley is you just barely lean your top shoulder back a little bit and you end up putting that hitch in your hip as you pull back. This is something that's super, super common. What you want to focus on anytime as an archer is you always want to have a little bit more weight on your front foot and you should always focus on keeping your front shoulder over your front foot as you raise your bow up to the target and as you draw that release hand back towards your face. Um, that hitch normally happens right as your cam is breaking over. So you really want to have focus on keeping that front shoulder. It, and sometimes if you're in the habit of hitching all the time, you may almost need to overcompensate and lean that shoulder even further forward of your front foot just so that when you do break over that valley and come in you're straight up and down having someone take pictures of yourself uh, from a broadside view while you're at full draw can help you also um, the best thing to do Mallory is to have Ryan stand right in front of you and as soon as he sees that top shoulder go back he should actually take, you know, if he's facing you, your right-hand shooter, he should take his left hand and push on your your right hip. It would be, you know, the left side to him. 
And then on your left shoulder, he should take the other hand and push that so that he's actually pushing both of his hands towards one another and it's ultimately straightening you up. Um, you learn to do that each and every shot. This is something that uh, Sharon struggles with when she doesn't shoot for a while and she picks up her bow again and you know has a little bit of difficulty pulling the weight or you know you're just trying to get back there and get relaxed in your shot. So what I'll do is I'll just stand in front of her and as soon as she goes to hitch I'll just push her hip towards her shoulder and straighten her right up each and every shot. And if you get in the habit of having someone correct you like that 10 or 20 times, you'll start to really get the feel for it. But hitching at the hip is a very common form flaw for people that, you know, aren't recognizing it. So for any of you out there, um, take a look at that a picture of yourself from a broadside view. Your shoulders should be directly over your hips and your hips should be directly over your feet. If there's a picture of yourself where your shoulders are tilted back behind your hips, then that means you have a hitch, and that is a form flaw. Uh, the next question here is from John England. He's asking about peep size. Um, says, I keep hearing that you'll shoot better with a smaller peep. What are the benefits with a larger peep or the smaller peep? Because I'm struggling with the smaller peep. Um, and then... It's kind of giving me some thanks for the podcast here, so I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, the smaller the peep sight that you shoot, the more accurate you're going to be simply because you have a lot less margin to float around. Your centering gets more defined and more focused. You know, it's kind of like um, if you had a rifle scope, you know, where if you had a like a an old iron sight, say like an old M16 that had a round circle on the back, and then your peg in the front if the background circle was super big like if it was the size of a spool of thread and then your front post was super small you would easily be able to float that front sight around a lot within the rear sight and it would be hard to make it the same all the time whereas if those two sizes are proportional it's a lot easier to give yourself a perfect eclipse and you know that you're not floating around left or right high or low um, I always like to have a peep sight that matches the outside diameter of my scope housing. I think that's really, really important. Um, you know, when I hunt, I use that bigger size. I use a quarter, I believe. It's uh, the exact size of my five-pin housing. Um, and the benefit to having a bigger peep is obviously you gather more light you're allowing more light in so you're going to be able to see in a lower light situation um, some people that are trying to shoot a small peep along with um, a very high power scope um, you kind of end up getting a very dark image um, if you are shooting a scope you know just so that you know the smaller the peep you shoot, the more it will clear up the image in the scope itself. Um, so if you're shooting a scope for the first time in a bow hunter class and your scope's pretty uh, out of focus, then if you have a really big peep sight, that's probably why. So the smaller the peep, the more you'll focus in your scope, but you'll also start to decrease the amount of light. So you kind of have to find that happy medium. But 
what I found is being able to have any type of sight and peep configuration to where you can make a perfect eclipse. That's the key because then you give yourself that extra little visual to make sure that you're centering yourself left to right, high and low. Uh, next question here is going to be from Joyce Haneman. Uh, she's asking about proper draw length measurement um, for those of us who have hyperextended arms. Um, there's quite a few archers out there with hyperextended arms and... Uh, I know, especially in younger archers, you got to be careful for this because that will that will start to hyperextend even more with age, with the pressure of shooting archery. Um, I really like to try to teach that soft elbow and how to keep um, your elbow soft and not have it hyperextended. Some people do, like Forrest Carter, for example, has a very hyperextended elbow. Um, he always has. A lot of recurve shooters have those very hyperextended elbows. Um, it's not necessarily bad. It's just, you know, you start to you start to really rely heavily on that bone alignment more than anything. And sometimes that type of shooting gets tough when you're starting to shoot on angles. Um, try to keep your elbow soft not bent but try to keep it soft try to point your elbow at about eight o'clock you know if you're facing forward and you imagine a clock try to have that elbow at about eight o'clock uh right now i actually trying to uh do this as i'm talking because then i know what i'm saying but i actually just now realized i can't really even turn my arm anymore so i'll have to hopefully that comes back with time of rehab mine's kind of in a set position of nine o'clock um, which is kind of straight out not really good but um, try to keep that at about seven eight o'clock um, because then your front hand position is going to be correct and you're going to be able to soften that elbow just a little bit but to measure your draw length what I like to teach for a rough estimate is I'll go ahead and have someone stand up just like, uh, you know, stand in a perfectly straight up position with their hands at their sides. I'll have them raise their hand straight up from their side and then make a fist. And then once you make a fist, scoot over towards a wall so that the front of your fist hits that wall. And you want to make sure that your elbow isn't fully hyperextended. You want to be able to have it somewhat soft. Um, Put the fit front of your fist on the wall. Make sure that your feet are directly under you so you're forming half of a T. Then look towards the wall and have someone measure from the wall to the corner of your mouth. That'll give you a pretty good rough estimate of what your draw length is. That's how I like to do my basic measuring for people. Um, this will get you in a pretty good position. When it The hyperextended arms or people that have double joints... It's hard for me to really know. It's easier for me to say this is what I think you should do, but I haven't had to deal with it really. I know that at one time I shot with a very hyperextended arm and I caused myself a lot of injury. Um, and when I shot with a very bent arm and compressed front shoulder, I probably caused a lot of the damage that I did to my shoulder now. Um once I learned to keep that elbow soft and point that elbow at about 8 o'clock, just so that as I shot, I was able to have a little bit of hyperextension, a little bit of absorption as I shot my bow. That was 
really, really, really valuable. So uh, we've kind of gone through all the target-oriented type questions here now. So um, I am going to move on to some hunting-oriented things and also probably talk a little bit about this last hunt that I have if I've got time. Otherwise, I can save that for another day. But uh, this first question is coming from Danny Moore. Um, He's asking me about my setup uh, for hunting and the reason I pick each part. So for right now on this subject, I'm going to talk specifically about what I picked for this bow that I'm using my mouth tab on because this was a completely different setup. Um, I'm shooting a left-handed Hoyt Nitrum 34. I was shooting about 44 pounds, but the night before I decided to go on this grizz hunt, I went up to... um, a 60 pound limb and backed it off a little bit so I'm shooting around the mid 50s for weight. Um, when it came to arrows I decided to go with an arrow that was fast over an arrow that was heavy and an arrow that had high of FOC simply because I wasn't going to make a shot if it was further than 30 yards. So there's kind of a a formula to where speed and mass end up crossing one another and a fast arrow will end up uh, a fast arrow versus a heavy arrow um, that speed will actually be a benefit to a certain distance and then once you pass that certain distance then the heavier arrow will actually start to have a lot more energy um, I wanted the speed just because of I didn't want a really big pin gap Um, and I also knew that if I'm shooting inside of 30, if I had a faster bow, even if it was a little bit lighter arrow, I would probably be better off with penetration. So I decided to go with an Easton hex with a standard insert. I went with the hex because I wanted to have the ability to shoot either a mechanical head or a fixed blade head. And I really, really love the straightness and the tolerances of the hex arrows. They're extremely straight. So I don't have to worry about any variance um, in uh, my fixed blade heads versus my, um, you know, from one head to the next. If you have an arrow shaft that doesn't have a good tolerance, a lot of times with a fixed blade head, you'll start to get arrows that plot in different areas as you're shooting. Um, my concept behind this was I wanted to be able to have the ability to shoot the muzzy trocar um, at my grizz if it was you know inside of 30 yards and then I wanted to be able to have the larger cut hypodermics in case I was going to shoot a black bear or if for some reason I had to make a follow-up shot and wanted to just kind of put another one in the body with a big cut so I went with uh, the hex arrows. I put the standard inserts in them just because I wanted that speed to keep my pin gaps down. Now for my sight, I went with a IQ bow sight because I really like that retina lock. Um, shooting with my right arm left-handed now and with my teeth, I actually put a lot of torque in the system. And if I don't have that retina lock to check my torquing of my bow, then my group's really, really varied. Um, I shot my Trophy Taker Smackdown Pro rest. That's the same rest I've always shot. Um, and other than that, I shot you know a D-loop uh, with the loop above and below the knock. Uh, I shot the 260 Elite Vein. 
Um, I really like that 260 vein. It's kind of the perfect size for me. Uh, it gives me the ability to shoot either a fixed blade head or a mechanical head without a problem. It's also kind of in that sweet spot for being able to have minimal wind drift. And, you know, I guess other than that, that's pretty much what I had. I had to shoot a really big peep sight. Um, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about peep sight, but I had to shoot a really big one. And the reason I did was because when I'm shooting with my teeth, my peep sight is very far from my eye. So I had to shoot a much bigger peep in order to have that perfect eclipse with my scope housing and my peep sight. So that was kind of different. But uh, all in all, my bow is shooting seems pretty fast. I haven't really measured it, but it seems pretty fast. Um, and everyone should remember too, I've got a 31 inch draw. So, um, you know, a, a 55 pound bow at a 31 inch draw shooting that hex is, is probably doing, um, as much good as a, a 60 or 65 pound bow on a 28 inch guy. So it's, uh, I was confident that it was going to be efficient and, I was also going into this whole hunt knowing that I'm going to be limited on the types of shots that I can make, and I was pretty much going there with the expectation of not really having much opportunity, uh, which is the same mentality I went to my first turkey hunt with in Nebraska, um, which is why as soon as that first Jake came in, um, I smoked that sucker because I was just happy to have a shot and have an opportunity at a distance that I was confident with using my mouth tab. So kind of the size of the animal and the quality of the trophy really goes out the window. I'm just happy to be able to be out there and be able to make my shot. So, um, and actually this goes into um, another question that, I know that I have here on my list and it's from Kevin Brennan and Kevin's asking, what do I consider a short axle to axle bow? And, um, the reason I'm mentioning that now is because when it comes to axle to axle lengths on bows, I don't really care what the axle to axle length is for certain people, because obviously if you have a shorter draw, you're going to fit into a shorter bow better than a longer bow. Um, I'm shooting the 34 inch nitrum just because I feel like it fits me really good. I have shot 30 inch bows, but the main thing that I look for is I want to be able to have the, the tip of my nose touch the string. If the axle to axle length and the brace height, um, which are really the two things that are more important, you know, that brace height and the axle to axle length, that's what factors into your string angle. If you're able to still have somewhat of a long brace height and have a short axle axle bow, your string angles won't be that bad. But if you're shooting a very short brace with a very short axle axle length and then you have a long draw length, then the angle is very severe. What ends up happening is you end up having to tip your head really far forward to touch the tip of your nose of the string or that string has to come very far back on the side of your mouth, which you don't want. I don't like to have too much string coming down the side of my face. I don't want the arrow shaft or the veins all back along my cheek. 
I don't want the peep sight too far from my eye to where I have to change sizes of peep just in order to get my eclipse on my front sight housing. If I end up having to go to a bigger peep uh, just to shoot uh, a normal bow my normal way, then I know that that peep is just way too far from my eye. So I like to try to find a bow that has a good balance. I like a short axle axle both for maneuverability, but if you start having to draw it back so long that that arrow shaft and fletchings are all down the side of your face, or if you're having to tip your nose or your head too far forward so that your nose touches a string, or if you're having to go to like a mega, mega big peep sight in order to see through it, then I think that's a sign that the axle axle length is probably too short. Um, so I've got a question here now from um, Chris Carter. Chris is asking, could you talk about how to make a perfect peanut butter and jelly sandwich, dud? And he says, if I do, he'll listen. So here's the deal. I had the perfect peanut butter and jelly sandwich in Carlisle, Iowa, and it was a habanero, um, a habanero jelly, and it went on a peanut butter sandwich on whole grain bread that was then grilled in a panini press. So it was like a hollow. It was like a it was like a jalapeno slash habanero chutney jelly on a grilled peanut butter sandwich, and it was mighty good. So other than that, any peanut butter and jelly sandwich without the crust, and I'm good. So there you go. Answered your question and made me hungry in the meantime. Um, my good buddy uh, Rasmus Anderson um, from over in Denmark says congrats on the Grizz um, he wants to talk a little bit about adrenaline and handling buck fever um, how to prepare for it well I can tell you that uh, with this Grizz it was one of the few times where I actually got sick to my stomach and um, kind of felt like I was going to lose my lunch um, we had spotted this bear the day before in a slash and he had busted us when we drove in he was looking at us at about 70 yards and actually was giving us perfect broadside shots and everything but um again with what's going on with my arm i'm very limited in my distance so uh he wasn't really scared of us or anything obviously they don't have any real natural predators so he just kind of wandered off into the bush and then I think once that happened, um, you know, my guides really started talking to me about the do's and don'ts of this whole grizz hunt and how once you shoot, you know, that grizz is going to pinpoint the sound and when they pinpoint that sound, they're going to make a decision of either charge or not charge. There won't be any in between. It's going to either be they're coming or they're not. So my guides told me that um, one of them was going to be off to my right and one of them would be off to my left, uh, just far enough away to where if I if he did decide to charge, that they would be able to have a broadside shot with their guns in order to drop him. Um, and they kind of told me to make sure that when you shoot, don't start moving a lot, because when you shoot, they're going to try to locate that movement. And then if they see you, you're going to provoke it to, to charge. 
Um, and then they said, and if he does charge, you have to just have faith in us to make our shots. Don't start running around or trying to get the bear to change his direction of course, because obviously they're trying to put the bear on the ground with the gun. So the more that stuff started going through my head, the more I started to really feel some uh, buck fever and adrenaline more than I've ever felt in my life. So uh the one thing that I can tell you over and over and over again that I've dealt with in tournaments and everything else is what's helped me deal with those types of things the most are to be able to just really try to focus your mind on your shot routine and the things that you need to do to make your shot. Um, I really focused on, you know, shot placement. I just, I wasn't worried about size of the animal. Once I knew that I was going to make my shot, I just really focused on trying to pinpoint the area, you know, making sure that I had my, you know, my my arrow on my rest, my grip was right, I wanted to pull back, I wanted to, I actually spent a lot of time at full draw, which you'll see next year on the show. Um, I spent more time at full draw than normal just because I was trying to get my, make sure that I wasn't torquing my riser. Um, I had to really relax my front grip and check that retina lock. Um, and then I was just really trying to hold my pin in the best place possible and relax my mouth. And because I was focusing on all of that, the amount of adrenaline and the amount of you know anxiety that you feel tends to be blocked out by the fact that you're occupying your conscious mind with all these systematic steps. So, you know, they say that, you know, getting nervous and that fight or flight, you know, type syndrome is going to be triggered more from, you know, it's going to be triggered from your conscious mind, not your subconscious. So the more you can occupy your conscious thoughts, the less likely you are to be able to allow something to wander in there that's going to trigger that fight or flight. So... Same thing at tournaments. I focus on my shot routine. I focus on shooting a 10 in my mind and the steps involved with shooting that 10 uh, more so than focusing on the result of what will happen if I do shoot that 10. Um, Next question here is going to be from Lightning Fast Sasquatch. I like your name. Um, He's asking about arrow tuning method, paper walkback French, uh, broadhead tuning to hill methods. What's my process? Um, we're kind of getting somewhat tight on time, so I'm not going to go totally crazy on this, but, um, my method or my, I guess the order of what I do is I'll set up my bow. I'll put an arrow in it that I think that I'm most likely going to shoot. Um, I'll paper tune, that arrow just to get a rough decent hole um, to, it's my starting point shooting it through paper at about three yards um, then once I do that I'll go outside and I'll shoot it for groups um, once I'm shooting it for groups I'll normally shoot it a little bit longer distance say around 50 yards and I'll just shoot it to see what types of actual plotting I'm getting if I shoot and my whole group is big around like say it's you know, five, six inches at 50 yards or something, and I'm having some flyers, then what I'll do is I'll probably decide that I would rather 
find the right arrow shaft or adjust my poundage on my bow to try to get that group to tighten up some before I start doing any of my walk back tuning. I really want to know that I've got an arrow that's matching my setup before I really do any of the fine tuning that's with the walk back because in the end you're going to have a hard time walk back tuning especially with broadheads if your spine of your arrow is not matching your bow setup. So I'll go out, I'll shoot if I feel like my arrow could be slightly weak or slightly stiff which is actually what happened on this last trip. Um, I was shooting in the 40s for poundage, but then once I jumped up to those 60-pound limbs, I went out and I shot, and even at 20 yards, I was shooting terrible groups, and for a while, I was like, what the heck is going on? Um, But then all of a sudden, I realized, duh, you probably need a whole new spine arrow, and time was running short. I didn't even really know if I wanted to deal with that. But then I remembered that I still had some 330 spine hex set up from the bow that I shot two years ago for my main hunting bow. So I went in and grabbed those 330 spines and shot three arrows with those. And then I shot three arrows with the 400 spines, which I had been shooting. And there was a huge difference in groups. The groups just tightened right up. So then once I knew that I was actually shooting the spine that I needed with those 330s instead of the 400s, then I went ahead and shot at 20, I shot at 30, I shot at 40, and I noticed that at 40 I was shooting a little bit left. Then when I put on those muzzy trocars, I actually hit quite a bit left. So I went ahead and moved my rest the opposite direction. I brought my rest in a little bit and then went ahead and did, you know, what would almost be like a walk-back tune. Um, You know, I would shoot at a short distance, then I shot at the long distance. If my arrows were drifting one way, I would move my rest slightly the other direction. And it's pretty minimal how much I'm talking about moving. It's not a great deal, but that was really what my method was. I paper-tuned, then I checked to make sure my spine match was right then I did my walk back tuning and you know for for broadheads I was doing it at about 50 in most cases this time because of my mouth I was doing it at 40 is my max um 20 and 40 if I was shooting my regular hunting bow it'd probably be around 50 especially if I was shooting fixed blade broadheads if I was doing it for target it would have been at 70 meters um I really like doing it at 70 meters for target arrows um, next question here is from Gabe Honka. I think that's how I pronounce it. Um, and just so everyone knows, if you hear any weird noises in the background, that's shades. She's laying down here on the ground, yawning and, yep, she just did it again. Yawning and kind of licking herself. Now she hears that I'm talking about her, so she's going to come over and shake her ears and sneeze. Good girl, Shady been listening to a lot of time of podcasts here she's probably getting hungry um so the next question is uh from gabe he's asking about broadhead tuning uh do i move the site or the rest um or do i move the either for broadheads um so this kind of plays into exactly what we were just talking about gabe when i talked about walk uh walk back tuning which is also french you know the french tuning method is what i call it 
But more or less what you do is if you have a bow where you know that you're shooting decent through paper, you know that you have an arrow that's matched good for your bow, then what you'll do is you'll sight in your bow at a short distance. And, you know, in the podcast that I did a few podcasts ago, I talked about how to shoot very short distances. So what you can do is you can move your sight to where you're hitting perfectly in the dead center of an arrow hole at like three feet. And that should be about the same distance as where your pin needs to be at 50 yards. So if you sight in to where you're hitting exactly in an arrow hole right at three feet, and then you go, and without moving your sight, you use that same sight pin and go ahead and shoot arrows. Make sure you're on flat ground. Make sure there's no wind. And if you make a crummy shot, cull that arrow out of your equation. But go ahead and shoot a group of arrows down there. If you see all of your arrows are grouping to the right, then you know that your arrow rest is probably too far in. So what you'll do is you'll counteract that by slightly, barely moving it in the opposite direction. Once you make a movement to your rest, then you need to go back to the shorter distance and adjust your sight so that your sight is hitting, so that you're hitting exactly in the center. Because anytime you move your rest, you move your sight. If you've moved your sight and the arrows aren't hitting where you need to when it comes to tuning, then you might move your rest. But you always move your your sight at the beginning of the equation. You always have to make sure that you're sighted in. And then make sure when you shoot that longer distance, you use the same pin. If you hit high or low, it doesn't matter. Um, typically, I try to shoot on a little bit bigger target face. What you're looking for is your left and right uh, grouping. You know, if you hang a uh, if you hang a string or if you put a vertical, perfectly vertical piece of tape on the target, you just want to make sure you're hitting that same vertical line at three yards as you are at 50 yards. And that'll tell you that your center shot is good. Um, having your level set properly on your bow can also play big into this too. So you have to make sure that your sight is set up the right way. Make sure you're shooting on flat ground make sure you don't have a side breeze otherwise that can throw you off too um let's see here kind of talked about peep size and okay we've got a question here from i think it's i can't pronounce it but it looks like jared for ruria I don't know if I pronounced that right. Sorry if I butchered it, but you're asking about filming on public lands and how to get the appropriate permits to shoot your legal. Here's the deal, guys. When it comes to hunting in foreign places or hunting in a different state or anything like that, um, I think the majority of the laws that are broken, and you know, I know that I've had a few times myself where I've done something that I just literally had no idea was happening. Really the best thing that you can do is get in the habit of, you know, making a call to your local, to the local warden in that area and just say, Hey, you know, I'm looking to come out for my first time hunting. Um, is there anything that I majorly need to know about when it comes to, you know, common game laws that are broken? And also I'm looking to do some filming, um, is there anything that I need to know about with that? I know on certain states you are supposed to have um, a permit to film on public lands, um, whereas a lot of them you're not. So 
the best thing to do is to call in and ask, and it'll really, really, um, you know, give you the best comfort of knowing that you're not actually in the process of breaking the law. Um, one more thing too here from, uh, uh, I've got a question here from Gabe, uh, Honka again, and I forgot to read this, the last part of this question. And that was, um, is it true that you need to have your fletchings line up perfectly with your broadhead blades? Um, is it, you know, is it a rule that a three blade, fl- uh, broadhead would need a three fletch and a four would need a four? Um, they'll certainly fly awesome that way. And I can tell you that what I found is the higher you go in speed, the more your broad head and vein alignment will matter. Um, if you're shooting with those offset from one another, if you have a met a really, really big fletching or a big feather with a lot of helical, or if you're shooting at a slower speed, you can start to get away with it and it won't have the effect. But if you have uh, a faster setup, uh, if you're shooting, definitely if you start shooting over 280 feet per second, um, or if you're shooting a slightly smaller vein, then you definitely need to make sure you're indexing between your broadhead blades and your veins are right. That makes a big deal. Um, you know, you have to, some cool tools to be able to like sand off like the end of the shafts if you're using like a, a hit system, um, like an Easton hit system. There's like a arrow squaring device that G5 made. Uh, that was really good for being able to perfectly square off the end of your shaft and sand it a little bit to where you could tighten that down to where your broadheads were indexed perfectly. And if you are shooting a four blade, um, you're going to want to really make sure that they're all the same if you're shooting a three fletch. Make sure that that blade configuration and indexing is the same on every single arrow and then sight in for it. Otherwise, it does really work well to have a four-fletch with a four-blade head. Um, okay, the uh, the next question or last question here was from Matthew Pauls, and he's uh, asking about um, you know what he wants to hear about shot sequence and especially what to say to yourself as you prepare for the shot. You know, for me, this is something that I covered actually in one of the segments of the new TV show this year. Um, the one thing that always goes into my mind whenever I'm, I see an animal, I know that the animal's given me a shot. I know that it's within range or even at times where I've been on a tournament line and, you know, you know that this is the shot. That's the deal breaker. This is all or nothing. Um, for me in my mind, I've always just said checkmate. Um, I know that the game's over. I can say that, you know, I shot target archery just because I wanted to be a better hunter. Um, I can tell you that my confidence as a hunter is probably 10 times what it is as a target archer. Um, I know a lot of people view me as a target archer and I know that, you know, I, I do know that I have a gift, a God given gift as an archer shooting my bow and as a target archer I definitely have to give credit to a divine power for that because that's I don't I certainly never practiced my whole life to be a good archer so it was just something that 
I have a natural talent for, but what I will tell you is when it comes to hunting, my confidence level um, is probably about as high as they can come. I'm fairly certain I don't, there's nothing I don't think that I can do from a hunting point of view. Um, I'm very, very confident in sneaking and stalking and the ability to make a shot at distances beyond what most people do um, if I had to. And um, I just, I carry that confidence mainly because I think I know my equipment so well. Um, I spend probably two or three times more time with my hunting equipment than what I do with my target equipment. Um, I really, really make sure that I know everything about it. I know how it shoots. Um, I know everything's matched. I spend a lot of time in knowing the differences between certain veins, certain broadheads, certain broadheads versus other broadheads. Um, the differences in arrows, uh, you know, everything about my setup has been trialed and I've pulled out all the errors. Um, my shooting form and having perfect shot form is really what target season's all about for me. And that's preparing for my hunting season. Um, you know, I just focus on the fundamentals, my stance, my grip, making sure my shoulder position is correct, anchoring, coming into my peep sight, leveling my scope, centering my peep, and pulling through my shot. I mean, if I do those six things, really, um, it's a done deal. I mean, that is all there is to archery are those simple, simple things. People tend to make a lot more of it than what it is. And I guess I'll use that as a segue into uh, this bear hunt that I just had, which was very, very, very cool, um, super nerve-wracking. Um, you know, I have I had already planned this last year, so it was actually something that I was worried about being ready for because I knew I had to shoot the mouth tab, and it's a big reason why I actually shot the turkeys during the turkey season was because I really wanted to build my confidence to where I needed it to be for this hunt in May. Um, but went up to British Columbia with uh, Lobo Peak Guides and Outfitters, uh, my good buddy, almost like a father, second father to me, Bert, um, has run that business for almost 20 years or more than 20 years. And I've been there since I think his second year. Um, hunting and have just I really enjoy hunting bears off the ground it's one of my favorite things is be able to spot and stalk um, so I went up there uh, to do that there's um, he actually sold the business to Cody Payne now um, so Cody was up there as well and we decided to, to go ahead and try this grizz hunt um, I had kind of a backup plan of going in October during moose season uh, had I not be able to really do the hunt with my one arm. And I guess I got to 100% give credit to Cody and Bert and Dusty and Jeremy for helping me on this hunt because I felt really useless not being able to pick up camera gear and backpack and not be able to carry things in both arms. And uh, even, well, the second day of the hunt, I actually, we were driving, we hit a bunch of big 
big potholes in the middle of a slash, uh, which is what they call a side of a hill where they log off of. And everything in the truck and buggy started bouncing up and down really hard. And um, I actually had my quiver off my bow and it bounced up and I just lunged through the air to grab it so I didn't get any of my arrows bent. And I grabbed the top of the quiver hood and when I did so, I actually took that trocar or a rage, I had both of my quiver right to my index finger and cut it all the way to the bone. I grabbed it and knew right away I had screwed it up and so I just went ahead and wrapped as much uh, electrical tape around it as I could really fast. And uh, so I'm just now starting to heal from that cut. But what sucked about it was it was the point, my index finger on my left hand. So even once we got my animals down, I wasn't able to help even with the skinning because I couldn't, one, I didn't want to get an infection in this because we were up, you know, three hours from a hospital. But I didn't want, I couldn't actually pull anything. It didn't have, I couldn't grab anything with it either. So like when it came to skinning, I couldn't even hold the hide to skin. So I was pretty much totally useless for anything other than pulling my bow back and shooting it. But bottom line is uh, the first or second morning, uh, we spotted a, a really nice black bear coming down this hillside. Uh, we knew that it was getting ready to actually cross this logging road that we were on. Uh, luckily, one of the other guys spotted it, uh, bailed out of the truck, kind of ran up to where I knew that bear was getting ready to come out of this little um, chute coming off the side of this hill and uh, ranged it, and it was like 30 yards. So I went ahead and pulled back, and he pretty much just walked right in right out into the open never even looked never even looked our way and made a perfect shot and then um, like I said earlier uh, a few days later we spotted that the big grizz and we knew he was there there was uh, we found a lot of fresh sign where he was feeding uh, it was a brand new slash well it was, I guess the slash was a few years old but all the green was really lush really growing and it was a south-facing slope. We actually had a Yamaha Viking with uh, tracks on it. So we were some of the areas we went through had almost six feet of snow in certain areas. We did a lot of winching. Uh, we were stuck a lot um, getting into some of these areas that were south-facing. Once you'd get into them, it would look like summertime. But in all the little shadowy areas of the hill, they were completely snowed under. But... Uh, we spotted him, knew he was in this area, so we actually slipped in there first thing the next day, spent time in there just glassing and watching, and uh, we finally caught a glimpse of him somehow down, almost halfway down the mountain. He was on like a second little tier. He was feeding on the inside edge of, uh, of a logging road, which uh, for any of you who are from that area know that a lot of those logging roads, they actually... Um, put clover on them just so that they don't erode so a lot of times in the spring those bears are focusing on the green clover uh, because they're trying to get their digestive systems going again so we looked down there and saw them feeding there and uh, went ahead and started making our stock and uh, as we got about I would say we were 150-200 yards from them 
my camera guy, Jeremy, caught something out of the corner of his eye, and when we turned and looked, we actually just saw the butt end of a bear going through the willows, and he was popping his teeth and swatting stuff and huffing at us, but he was about 80 yards away, and for a second there, we thought it was actually the grizz. We thought somehow he had spotted us, so obviously my heartbeat started pounding out my chest because I'm thinking, okay, this thing's mad enough to come charge us now. Um and I definitely knew shooting 50-something, 60 pounds wasn't going to be enough for like a frontal shot if I ended up getting charged or something. So uh, we let the bear go up the hill huffing and puffing, and then as we were about ready to turn and leave, someone turned and spotted that grizz still feeding. It was about 100 yards away, and we could just see his back over the edge of the bank. So... I went ahead and tried to make my stalk. Meanwhile, the two guys that were covering me with guns were on the sides um, in case there was a charge. And as soon as I told the camera guy, I said, as soon as you can see the bear, you need to stop and get position and get quiet because I need to try to slip into, you know, within range. And everybody was pretty much set. The bear was feeding and... I just started, I actually got on this blowed down log and started tight roping this log towards the bear. And I could see the bear's hump. I could see most of his shoulder. I, could, I thought I could see where I needed to shoot, but he was right over this edge. So the only way I could get my shot was to keep walking up this blow down, which was laying on a stump. So I had to walk up it to get closer and higher at the same time. And, uh, just at the time I thought if I can get right here I'll have the shot and as soon as I made that step where I knew for sure I was going to be comfortable making my shot uh, my foot kind of rolled and I ended up making a crack noise and all I could see was the bears I went from being able to only see the hump to then I could see the whole head come up right behind this pine tree and I knew that he was trying to determine where that sound came from and it was at that point I just pulled back I wanted to pull back before he turned to look as soon as I knew I had alerted him I just pulled back and I was trying to go through my shot routine and center my pin and get my my grip right and all that stuff and I just put my pin on his hump and kept coming down coming down coming down and pretty much came down about halfway down the body and uh, it felt like minutes but in the end it's probably 15 seconds Uh, but it felt like minutes and then finally you know right about the time I kind of thought the bear was getting ready to either turn and look at me or go away uh, I went ahead and made my shot and as soon as I did I kind of as soon as the arrow went it was like slow motion to me but it's it's actually really fast. My bow's shooting good speed. Smacked the bear, and luckily he went away, and I just heard a ton of crashing and all that stuff going down the hill. It was an awesome, awesome, awesome day, and I can tell you that it's going to be something that you're not going to want to miss on the next season of Knock On, that I can tell you. And what made the hunt even cooler after that was uh, we decided to give the bear a lot of time. Uh, definitely don't want to go in on an injured uh, grizz. And because 
the camera guy could see some of the shot. The other two guys could see none of the shot. Um, everybody was pretty much depending on what I saw. And uh, the camera the camera was kind of zoomed way back at first, but then as I came to full draw, it zoomed in tight. But because I was aiming so long, I think the camera guy thought that I must have let down, so he zoomed back again. And once he zoomed back and saw that I was still at full draw, he started to zoom in, and that's when the shot happened. So we weren't able to like see crystal clear where the shot had went. But uh, once we recovered the bear, which was an unbelievable feeling, especially to be able to do it with with friends that are so close to me, um, we kind of waited till about uh, nighttime to do all the stuff that we needed to do. Uh, evening and then on our way out when we were going past the spot where we originally had encountered that other bear there was a bear out on the road again and I have two black bear tags so this was I still had one tag available and the bear actually turned and looked at us and then just started walking straight away and huffing and puffing and I just went ahead and decided to go after him so I kind of just followed him and where he turned the hill to go up into the thick brush up on the hillside uh, I went over there and I was able to spot him right through the through the willows up on he was probably about 20 to 25 degrees above me at about 25 yards just looking down at me popping his teeth and huffing and I was able to see one spot where I had a really good quartering away shot and I pulled back and the camera guy came into position uh wasn't perfectly in focus but that's what happens when you're doing spot and stock but the bear is centered in the frame and everything and you just get to see that nocturnal just rip right behind the shoulder and the bear made it about 30 yards was done in literally few seconds and uh then got to hear the death moan and i was tagged out um just an amazing amazing way to end uh, a hunt with some friends that I've been dear friends with for almost two decades here. So it was super memorable. Um, you know, I started adding up, you know, the five or six turkeys that I shot with my mouth this year. And, and now this, it's a uh, pretty freaking awesome. And I guess the one thing, um, that I will say is, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be doing some speaking at the junior world championships, um, here in, I guess three weeks and uh, I plan on trying to do the flying fish and do some bow fishing with my mouth too so should be a pretty uh, a pretty dang cool start to next year's season that I can promise you guys so with that said it is now six o'clock I have been doing podcasts for almost most of the day and I'm sure my beautiful wife is wondering why i'm not up there getting ready for supper so thanks everybody for listening and if you like what we're doing do support us and uh try to get a hat get a shirt because that's the small stuff that that helps pay the bills so appreciate everything from all you guys and can't thank everybody enough for all the support that you give me uh through social or anything else and All this stuff, 100% is for all of you guys. Thanks.
Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com